Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, let's open uh, with our scripture reading today. Uh, reading from Song of Songs, chapter 3. Uh, receive now the word of the Lord. Upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answers. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The sentinels found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the wild does, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. What is that coming up from the wilderness? Like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of the merchant? Look, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men of the mighty men of Israel, all equipped with swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh because of alarms by night. King Solomon made himself a palanquin from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of siller its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out. Look, O daughters of Zion, at King Solomon, at the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. This is the word of the Lord. So before we jump in this morning, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in this space, to be together, to be in community. God, we pray uh, that we would receive from you this morning. And Lord, may the Holy Spirit be within us, be uh, at full power as the word that comes from you transforms our lives. God, may, be we, may we be people that seek relationship. May we be people that live into who you created us to be. We love you, God. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So a little known fact uh, about me is that I actually have a certain like secret like love of math. I love math. I love numbers. In fact, I love math so much that when I was in high school, I thought to myself, you know, I love math, I love teaching, and I love kids, so I should be a math teacher. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a math teacher. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be a math teacher. And then at junior year, about 17, I became a little bit more socially aware, and I realized, wait a second. <clears throat> if, uh, I think there's two reasons I can't be a math teacher. The, the first reason I can't be a math teacher is, well, they just really don't make very much money. And so, yeah, and so if I'm going to support a family, like, how can I be a math teacher? But the second part, this is the social aware part, I was like, you know, Math is one of those, like, divisive topics. You know, some people are like, oh, I really like math, too. And other people are like, they hear you say, oh, I, I like math. Or I'm a math teacher. They're like, oh, yeah, I, I don't really like math. And so uh, to prepare myself for life ahead, I chose not to be a math teacher, but instead chose, of course, to be a pastor. And on both accounts, things got a little bit more tricky. But jokes aside, uh, the point of this is that in these social contexts, what, is, what happens when we go to a party or we go to an event and we meet someone, we introduce ourselves and we say, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm blank. Or what do you do? Oh, I am blank. 
And on a more serious note, this is a tricky place for me personally to live into. Um, in Seattle, it's not very popular to be a pastor. And so whether I'm meeting someone at my wife's, uh, one of my wife's coworker parties, or I'm even like going to a random barber and they're like sitting down and they're like, what do you do? And they ask you, and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a pastor. It gets real quiet. They keep cutting my hair. Um, so sometimes I just totally like scoot around it. And I say, oh, I'm a teacher, or I'm a student, both which are true, right? Uh, I work with kids. Oh, great. That must be awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. But you know what? It's kind of funny, because on both sides of the issue, I'm either kind of ashamed of what I do, and so I don't just own it. I don't live into my identity. I don't live into who I am. Or I skirt it. I get out of there scotch-free, and then later I'm ashamed because I didn't own who I am. And I think that what we see in our culture often is that our culture defines the way in which we can enter into relationship. Because in those moments, when I withhold part of my identity, I am not vulnerable. I am not entering into the relationship with that person the best that I can. And so that's what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about relationships. We're talking about the relationship in the way that God has called us to and the way in the world gets in the way of but before we jump into chapter three, I want to catch everybody up. We've been talking about Song of Songs for a couple of weeks now. Um, and Song of Songs is a book of the Bible in the Old Testament found uh, in, the, in the, wisdom, the books of wisdom, wisdom li- uh, literature. And Song of Songs is a book of poetry. It's written in a poetic form, which is very different uh, than some of the more narrative uh, l- uh, pieces of literature that we find in the rest of the Bible. And so we come at it from a little bit different of a lens. And so as we've gone through this series so far, and as we'll continue to go through the series, we're going to be flipping between two viewpoints. The one is the more literal, uh, tangible example that Song of Songs is a love story. But the other one is a little bit more metaphorical, that the characters in Song of Songs point to uh, us and our relationships with God and the world. See, there's three characters in Song of Songs. And the first is the woman. She's our protagonist. She's the main character. She's our heroine. And she represents us in the story. And then another character in the story is the king. And the king lives into the king's power, right? And the woman is part of the king's harem. And so the love relationship that she experiences there is one of power and control. And the king represents the world and the way that the world wants to conscript us into the ways of the world, into the norms of our world. But there's a third character. The third character is the shepherd. And the shepherd is the one that the woman loves, the shepherd is also called the beloved. The shepherd is Jesus. And so all of Song of Songs is pointing us towards the way in which we are called into relationship with Jesus. We are called into relationship with one another. But unfortunately, the world has something to say about that. And so as we jump into uh, chapter three of Song and Songs, <clears throat> we're going to try and accomplish three things this morning. First, we're going to talk about chapter three. And we're going to see the two pictures of relationship that chapter three has for us then we're going to hold that up against the culture and ask, what is going on in our culture that impacts the way that we live into relationship? And the last is, we're going to take what we've talked about, and we're going to push it in the direction that God has for us this morning, which is to increase in relationship. So, your first bullet point for this morning, 2 plus 2 equals 3. You're probably thinking to yourself, that's bad math, Ken. You definitely didn't miss your call, that's for sure. Uh, But I promise you, the the math works out on this one, because in chapter 3, we see two pictures 
of love and relationship. We see two postures of the way we're supposed to enter into love. And then we see two animating forces of relationship. And so as we jump into chapter three, uh, it's kind of divided into two, into two pieces. The first one th- verses one through five are the story of the woman looking for her love. And then verses six through 11 talk about uh, King Solomon. Now, historically, this story has been split in half, and it's been taught that the first is supposed to be held aside from the second. But interestingly enough, they're the same chapter in our Bibles, and that's for a reason. As the teaching team and I have uh, did our research this week, we really found that to get the most out of these two pieces of chapter three, we're actually supposed to hold them in tension with one another. And it's when we hold them in tension with one another that we see what God has for us. Uh, in relationship. So, so first, the first posture of love. The first posture of love we see in the story of the woman. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And the story goes on in a similar matter. The first observation that we see from these first five verses is that when we're entering into love, we're called into action. See, when the woman was lying on her bed, she had a choice. She sought her love. We see active verbs all the way through. I sought, I sought, I called. I will rise, I will seek. And then finally, I have found. So when we're living into a posture of love, we're living into or called towards an active love. Uh, The second observation we see uh, is also starts out in verse 1. Now, because this is poetry, in any good poem, if there's a repeating phrase, it's probably something that we should pay attention to. So one of the repeating phrases in chapter 3 is this. I sought him whom my soul loves. Whom my soul loves. Now, soul is the key word in this phrase because in the Hebrew, the word here is nefesh. And nefesh means, can be translated as heart or soul, but that's not a tangible part of who we are, but actually all of who we are. And so nefesh means that I come to this with every part of who I am. And so the second observation, the second part of this first posture of love is that when we are seeking in love, we are seeking with everything that we are. The woman is seeking her loved with everything we are. And I think we can call that vulnerability. Right, that as we go into love, we're called to be vulnerable with one another. So the woman is actively seeking in a place of vulnerability her love. So this first posture of love we're going to title as a pursuing love. The second posture of love that we see in the second part of chapter 3 is, is a little bit more complicated to get out. And I'll be honest with you, I wrote up a really amazing uh, argument as to why we need to read this book as more metaphorical than as the historical, as it's more of a setting that is presented in the Bible. In fact, um, my Bible, the title for this section is The Groom and His Party Approach. And so what can be seen on the surface as this wedding ceremony or processional uh, is actually supposed to be read a little bit more metaphorical. And the truth is that I timed out my sermon a couple times and it was way too long. So I cut it and I'm just going to give you the highlights. Um, (laughs) The highlights are this. In verse 6, The tone is set for this part of the chapter. In verse 6, it reads, What is that coming up from the wilderness? Like a calm of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of the merchant. Now, 
this kind of starts us off thinking that something is coming. This is the, these are the words that we commonly understand to mean that uh, the processional is beginning. But anybody who is living in the day in which that this uh, book was written would know that a column of smoke that smells of frankincense and myrrh is tied to the sacrifice that's happening at the temple. See, the temple sacrifice, the sacrifices were anointed with these, these, uh, these herbs and spices. They anointed them with frankincense and myrrh. And then you could smell that all around as sacrifice was being offered up to the Lord. And so what we would imagine a wedding to be would be filled with love and joy and romantic, uh, romanticism. But the undertone of what the woman is telling us is that when she starts thinking about the posture of love that King Solomon has, it's a love that's sacrificial for her. It's something where she has to give up part of herself. So that changes the way we read uh, this piece of the story a little bit. And she goes on to describe that that King Solomon is on his litter. He's surrounded with all these mighty men. And then she talks about the next part. And it's really important to remember that the woman is who's narrating the second part, and we understand that because they're held when we hold them together. And the, the, the scripture reads, starting in verse 9, King Solomon made himself a palanquin. Now, this should raise a red flag for us. Kings don't make things. They ride around in them, but typically they don't make them for themselves. And it goes on to say that it was made of, of wood of Lebanon and posts of silver and that it's back of gold, and it's seat of purple. It's describing a palanquin or this throne on which the king rides. And then lastly, it says, its interior was inlaid with love. Now, I know we would all like to believe that King Solomon was like, I need a new chariot, and he crafted it lovingly and poured himself into it. But unfortunately, the love that is being talked about here is not something being lovingly crafted. It's a, a little bit more sexual than that. It's that this chariot was made for something that had to do with the king's sexual desire. And that's how we define, the Hebrew defines love in this place. And so I'm going to turn over to one of the commentators that we've been studying as we've been talking about Song of Songs, Ian Provain. Ian Provain says it a little bit more eloquently than I can. So I'm just going to read for you uh, how we are supposed to kind of take in uh, this posture of love from the second part of the chapter. Ian says, the chariot, quote-unquote, is therefore, in my best view, thought of as a bed. It is the finely upholstered vehicle on which the king travels, as it were, on his journey of sexual delight. The daughters of Jerusalem, which are mentioned in the next verse, are, allude to the king's many wives and concubines, and they pave his way, as it were, by lying with the king in the center of his chariot or bedchamber. These are the people who provide the stones that enable the ongoing royal journey, read as lineage. There is therefore movement in chapters, or in chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. But it is the movement, however, not of a sedan chair or carriage, but of the chariot on which the king rides to meet the dawn. So, ooh, uh, when we look at this part of chapter 3, we have to see it as that it is also describing a posture of love, but it is describing a posture of passivity, right? Because it's on this bed that the king awaits for his needs to be met as the women, and especially the woman of our story, comes uh, as is commanded of them. So we get two different pictures of love. The first posture of love is one of pursuit. It's the woman going out, actively 
seeking her love. And the second posture is one of passivity, of one of just waiting for love to come to the king. So two postures of love. The other thing that we have to pay attention to in chapter 3 is that there are two animating factors or forces of relationship. And because it's poetry, it's earmarked for us really conveniently uh, by the mention of a mother. So whenever we see repeating terms in poetry, especially in scripture, we're looking to see what kind of connotations that we can, we can take from these points. They've been held in tension on purpose, so what does that tell us? Well, when a mother is mentioned in the first part of chapter 3, uh, it's in verse 4. And this is right after uh, the woman finds her love. And it says, When I had found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. Now, again, you know, there's some kind of awkward connotations about the chamber in which one was conceived. But if we can put that aside, we see this really beautiful picture of something that animates our love animates our relationship. See, for the woman, the place in which she was conceived means, signifies a place for her that is safe and secure. Because for her, this place in which she was conceived was a place where her parents, in an immense amount of vulnerability and intimacy, met together. And from their meeting, from them being with one another, life came forth. Her life came forth. And so when we assume this posture of love that's pursuing and, invulner- and it's in vulnerability that we enter into intimacy, it's life-giving. The second animating force of love that we see is when Solomon's mother is mentioned later in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Come out, look, O daughters of Zion, at King Solomon, at the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Again, we like to believe that this is a wedding processional, and we love to believe that just like in our modern context, weddings are filled with joy and romantic love, and it's the beginning of new life, but unfortunately, in the culture of the woman who is writing to us, weddings, especially those involving crowns, were mostly political. It's one of the reasons why King Solomon had so many wives is because there were so many political alliances that he entered into by marriage. And so the day of joy that led to this crown wasn't a day of entering into love, but it was a day of taking on the animating force of relationship of power. Through the crown, the king gets his power. And in that way, he comes by his control of the woman, or, or of the women that are, are in his uh, control and his command. And so... We see two very different pictures of relationship uh, presented to us in chapter 3. One, a pursuing uh, vulnerable love that leads to intimacy, and one that's grounded in power and control, and because of power and control in that relationship of the king, it can be passive. Now, if we look at this through the metaphorical lens that we've been, tr- we've been trained to do through Song of Songs up to this point, we see uh, pictures of how we are supposed to be called to love. If the woman represents us, we're called into this pursuing relationship with God, the beloved. We're also called to this pursuing relationship, this intimate relationship, this relationship of vulnerability with one another. But just like for the experience of the woman, Solomon representing the world, the world keeps pulling her 
towards a relationship that is grounded in power, grounded in control, and grounded in passivity. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we see that this is true in the culture around us. And so kind of to close out kind of the theological reflection on chapter three, right? Two postures of love, two animating forces of relationship is the picture of relationship that we see in chapter three. But then the question that we have to move into is what divides the relationship? What keeps us from the relationship that we're called to step into? I think there are many uh, different reasons that the world around us prizes different kinds of relationships than the relationship that we've been called into with God and with others uh, for which we were created. Um, but recently, I've been reading, uh, a, a, one of my favorite authors has been a Brene Brown. And if you know anything about Brene Brown, um, she is a sociologi sociological researcher who studies shame. And the most recent book that I've read by her is called Men, Women, and Unworthiness. And I think in our moment, at this point in time, uh, coming to understand shame a little bit better will help us understand the way in which the world gets in the way of our relationships. Because as Dr. Brown talks about, um, she talks much in her shame colleagues who talk about shame in the research, talk about uh, our self-conscious affect, the way in which we view ourselves. And the way in which we view ourselves is awesome, taught to us, by the cultural norms around us. And it's taught to us uh, by the way in which we, re we interact with one another. It's the way in which that I'm asked what I do and I avoid the question, right? That's a social norm. And so she says, at the core of understanding the way in which we enter into relationship is also the way in which we understand shame in our lives. And when she describes shame, she describes shame by holding it in uh, tension with guilt. And she says, in our culture, we often get these two confused. We often say that they're synonymous with one another. But she says, they're not. And simply put, shame is the idea that I am bad. And guilt is the idea that I did something bad. See, shame is when we internalize the things that the culture says about us, the negative things that the culture says about us. It's the way that we fall short. It's the mistakes that we made. And we internalize those in such a way that it defines who we are. And out of that place, we feel that we aren't accepted, that we don't belong, and that we're unworthy of love. Wow. She says guilt, on the other hand, is when we understand that we've made a mistake and it drives us towards something better. That we want to, when, when we make a mistake, the next time we want to do it better. She says, guilt's a positive emotion, shame is not. Guilt is something that we sh have all felt and should feel at times, shame is not. And to kind of illustrate this point, a uh, personal story, right? Um, many of you know that um, I'm a seminary student at Seattle Pacific University. That's part, that's like my full-time gig, uh, right next to being a full-time husband and a part-time pastor. And uh, so one of the really interesting things about being in school, for those of you who are in it or remember, is that there's often times where there's a, you get these little reality checks, and they're called uh, grades. And so grades tell you how you're doing and how you're measuring up and all these different things. And I'm pretty resilient when it comes to grades. I've kind of strategically placed my times in all these different places so I can be the best that I can be in all these uh, different realms of my life. And sometimes the grades are uh, great, and sometimes the grades are not so great. And when they're not so great, sometimes that leads to guilt. And I think to myself, oh, I could do a little bit better, probably. 
So next time, hopefully, I try a little bit harder or I put a little bit more time in. But one of the things that I don't cope really well with, one of the things that I don't have a, a lot of resilience with, is when I just completely miss something. So my first quarter of being at Seattle Pacific, I was in a class about youth ministry. And at the, the first day of class, we passed around the sign-up sheet, and everybody was supposed to sign up for a day when they would present on a certain chapter from a reading, kind of to kick off class. So you go, oh, here's point A, B, and C of the chapter, and, and these are some of the thoughts I had. What do you guys think? Um, and so one day, I show up to class, and uh, the professor calls on me and says, uh, Ken, you had chapter six. What, what was going on in chapter six? And I was caught totally unaware. Uh, I thought I had put this in my schedule, but I totally missed it. I either overlooked it or I forgot or something. And it's in that moment, it's my first quarter of school. I'm just trying to figure out what it means to do all these different parts of my life at the same time as many of us are always trying to figure that out. And I just felt like I had missed it. I was a bad student. I wasn't, this is not going to work for me. And so in that moment, my mistake turned into part of who I was. It's me being a bad student. And then that quickly spirals, right? When we have these moments of shame in our life, they, they quickly spiral. And I, man, I'm a bad student. And my wife is working so hard for me to be able to go to school. I'm a bad husband. And if I'm a bad husband and a bad student, how am I ever going to be a good pastor? And these things just spiral and spiral and spiral. And that's the point. The point is, this keeps us from fully living into who we are if we turn what is wrong inward as that which we identify with. Because, as my wife has so lovingly told me, I'm a good student, and I'm a pretty good husband, and <laughs> I'm an I'm a okay pastor. And so, <laughs> and so, uh, so as we kind of move into this, the question becomes, so what is it that keeps, what pushes us into shame? What is it that makes us think these kind of horrible things about ourselves that keeps us from entering into relationship? Anything that says, you, are, um, you don't belong, that you aren't accepted, that you are unworthy of love are things that we should try and figure out and move away from, right? And so Brene Brown has done a lot of research in this, and she says one of the number one things that leads to shame within our culture is cultural gender norms. She says the way in which that genders see one another and even see themselves and point towards those things in culture are places where uh, we feel the most shame. So I'm just going to name those for us. So for, uh, the, for, for women, femininity norms, what it means to be the perfect idea of women. Culture says that it means to be thin, it means to be nice, it means to be modest, and it means using all of our resources in pursuit of a better appearance. And for men, masculinity norms, what it means to be a man means uh, that you are emotionally stoic, that you are in control of your emotions and you show none. It means that you have a primacy of work, that you privilege violence, you privilege control over women. Sound like pretty terrible things. But you know what? They show up in, in real ways in all of our lives, right? It's these negative pressures, right? It's these negative places where we're ridiculed that these norms show up and we start feeling that we're, like we're inadequate. It's the pressure a woman feels when uh, she wants to pursue a career and instead of staying at home with the kids, or when a man wants to stay home with his kids and not pursue a career. It's that negative pressure of being a woman called to leadership, or it's the dad on a soccer team who's being ridiculed for being emotionally available to his kids. 
right? It's, church, it's, it's when we look in the mirror, when we as men, we as women look in the mirror and we don't see a TV ad looking back at us that we feel shame. And this is what our culture does. Our culture paints a picture of what we're supposed to look at and says, when you aren't that, you are imperfect. And in your perfection, you don't belong, you aren't accepted, and you're unworthy of love. And I'm here to tell you that that's a lie. And that's what's being told to us in Song of Songs, because that's not what God has for us. That's not the relationship that we were called to. And yet, we still, we still feel those things, right? We still feel the way that our culture tells us that we are in inadequate. I'm an inadequate husband. I'm an inadequate wife. I'm an inadequate friend. I'm an inadequate lover. I'm an inadequate employee. There's all these places where we think about ourselves as lesser. And the problem is when we think about ourselves as lesser, we think that we're unworthy of love. And when we think we're unworthy of love and relationship comes to us, how do we greet that love? Passively, because we don't believe that we deserve it. And worse than that, when we feel like we're out of control in our lives and, and we come home from work and we had a crazy bad day at work because someone told us that we aren't doing a good enough job at our job, what do we do? Well, we exert power in the only places where we have power, and that's in our relationships with the ones that we love. We're called, church, to put this aside. <clears throat> and, then, you know, this seems like a downer because it kind of is. But you know what, Brene Brown says in response to this, that there is an answer, and we can all step into this, and this, as the church, is what we're called to step into, we're called to step into empathy. Empathy. Now, you may understand empathy <clears throat> as having a shared experience with somebody, and so you can step in alongside them and be like, oh, I've been here, and I know how bad this, how terrible this is. But Brene says, no, the actual power of empathy is in the feelings. You may not understand how the person you might not understand the exact circumstance that that person has gone through, but you understand the feelings that they're feeling. You feel, you know hurt, you know sadness, you know pain, you know embarrassment. And when it's when you come alongside in empathy that we are able to move away from the way, away from the way in which the culture divides our relationships, and we're able to move towards the way that God's calling us to increase in our relationships. And we know that this is possible, and we know that this is something we're called to, because we see this in Jesus. Side note, Jesus was sent to be an incarnational example of what it means to be in relationship with God for us. Jesus is a picture on earth of God's empathy. We serve an empathetic God. That's important to remember. But further, we see this picture of Jesus as empathetic in the story of the woman in the well, John 4. We've heard the story, right? It's the story of Jesus. He was passing through to another town, and on his way, he passed through Samaria. And when he got to Samaria, he went to the well. He was thirsty, and he met a woman there. Now, the important thing, we get this far in the story, and we know kind of how it goes on. But I was talking with one of my friends from Egypt uh, about the story of the woman at the well. And he says, what Western culture so often misses in this story is this little one line. I think it's in verse 3. It says, Jesus went to the well, and it was about noon. My friend Hanny says, nobody in the Middle East goes out at noon. It is hot. 
is too hot. Everybody's inside looking for shade, so anybody who's out and about at noon is hiding from everybody else. The woman at the well was living in shame, and we know her story, right? She had many husbands, and because of that, she had been cast out. Her culture told her that she, was, she, that she wasn't accepted, that she didn't belong, that she was unworthy of love, and so she finds herself in the hottest part of the day going to get water. And you know who meets her in that? Jesus. Jesus comes up to her and says, I know you. I know that you've had multiple husbands. But here's the really great part about empathy that Jesus employs right here. It's when we can look at somebody else and we can say, you've made mistakes. This woman had made mistakes. But those mistakes don't define you. You may have cheated, you aren't a cheater. You may have lied. You aren't a liar. You may have committed adultery, but you are not an adulterer because you know what Jesus said to this woman? This Jesus, Jesus said to this woman, what I give you is the living water. And those who enjoy the living water never thirst again. Jesus said, you are not identified by what you have done. You are identified as a child of God. You are a recipient of the living water. Church, we are recipients of the living water, and we are called to share that with others. And when we do that, when we point at someone's mistakes, when we point at someone's uh, inadequacy and cultural norms, we can come alongside them and say, look, that's not who you are, because that's not who God created you to be. Church, God created us because God wants to be in relationship with us. Karl Barth, a 19th century theologian, says it like this. God created because God didn't want to be God without being in relationship with you. God doesn't want to be God if God can't be in relationship with you, each of you. I'm going to close with this uh, final illustration. So... Um, one of the most shameful days of my life uh, happened when I was a junior in undergraduate. Junior year was a really busy year for me. Uh, this was the beginning of junior year. And I was a full-time student, and I also um, was, I got to be, I got to participate in this uh, student counseling process. I was at Seattle Pacific. Each floor in the dorms has a student ministry coordinator, which kind of is like a, uh, a floor pastor, if you will. And then I was hired to be the pastor of those pastors. So my title was resident hall ministry coordinator. And so between being a full-time student and being a part-time pastor to students, I knew that there were some things in my life that were on the edges that I really enjoyed, but I just didn't have time for. And one of the things that was really formative for me as in my undergraduate, especially in sophomore year, was being on the speech and debate team. And I loved being on the speech and debate team. It was really formative who I are, and I loved the coach. The coach was somebody I looked up to, someone who had played a huge role in my life as to the man that I was becoming, for better or for worse. And I thought this man walked on water. So I, I made an appointment with him to go tell him that I wasn't going to be able to be on speech and debate. And I figured that he would be disappointed. And I was coming to terms with that. But I thought that he cared. 
for me in such a way that he would empower me to go forth into my ministry. And I walked into that meeting, and I told him that I, had a, I was a little bit overcommitted and that I needed to uh, not be on the speech and debate team this year. And he said, are you kidding me? And I said, no, I feel called to this, and um, I really feel like I need to make room and space in my life so that I can be a good pastor. And he looks at me, and he says, I just want you to know you've let your team down. He said, I'm disappointed with you. He, he said, you're a bad teammate. And he said, you're a disappointment. And he said to me um, that he wasn't sure that I was listening to God, right? And I didn't know what to say. So I said, I'm sorry, but I can't do this. And I left. And then I walked back to my dorm room. And the whole time I walked back, what this man had said to me was going around in my head. He said, you're a bad teammate. You're, you, are, um, you are obviously like making bad decisions, so you must be a bad student. And you're a disappointment. So I walked back saying in my head, you're a disappointment, you're a bad teammate, you're a bad friend, you're a bad student. You don't hear the voice of God. And I barely make it back to my, my dorm room, and I open my door, and I'm crying. I'm weeping, and I shut my door, and I bawl. And I open my eyes, and I do one of these, and looking at me is my best friend. He knew where I was going, and he was there for me when I got back. And I told him what had been said to me, and he was angry with me, and he said, that's not who you are. He said, you're a good man. You're a good student. You're an amazing friend, and you're one of the most faithful men of God that I know. And we cried together. Church, that's who we're called to be. We are called to be people who step into other people's lives and say, that's not who you are. God has created you this way. That's powerful. And that's who we get to be as the church. So my prayer for us this morning, as we look at Song of Songs, as we look at the relationship that the woman had with her beloved, the one with her soul longed for, that's the relationship we're called to with God. That's the relationship we're called to with one another. The world will try and have a say in our relationships. But we can model our lives after an empathetic Jesus and enter into those relationships in the way that God has created us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you have a deep desire to know us and to be in relationship with us. God, we pray that we would be able to see the norms in our society that hold us to this ridiculous standard and say, that's not who I'm called to be. That's not who I'm called created to be. And God, we pray that through the church, through our friends, through the ones who know us, who we can share life with, that your love would be poured out and those places would be covered. We also pray, God, that in the midst of turning away from our shame and moving towards vulnerability, we would be in a more just impassioned relationship with those that we love and with you. Lord, guide us, we pray. Amen.